Well, good afternoon, church. My name is David Idris Lawrence. I am one of the servants and the messenger of Christ among the members of this church. I've got good news and bad news. Which do you want first? All right. Well, half of you are like me. You want the bad news first because you want to end on a good note. You know, you want to feel a little better. And I think that's usually how how we take that uh, that question. Well, the Christian message, the gospel, is called the good news, but it also has bad news. You see, this bad and good are so tightly linked together that they, they, they can't really be separated. Yeah, you can have actually the bad news and never really get to the good news. Most people are there. But you cannot have the good news apart from bad news. In today's passage, Paul begins his recounting of the bad news. And what is the bad news? We all, all people deserve God's wrath. There is nothing we can do to turn him from his anger, to avoid the outcome of his judgment. There is nothing we can give, nothing we can do that can influence his decision. We all deserve eternal conscious punishment in hell. This bad news is what the next several sections of Paul's letter to Rome is all about. In, in this section, Romans 1, 18-32, which Joe just read for us, I am going to sum up this bad news as this, our main point for the sermon. In wrath, God gives wicked people what they desire. In wrath, God gives wicked people what they desire. And we'll go through this passage in three points. They're a little bit different than what you have in your bulletin. So you might want to write this down or change it on your bulletin. The first one is the same. Truth suppressed. The second one actually combines what you have in the bulletin. It's foolishness, a foolish exchange and given over. And then the third point, new for you, is filled full and empty, not energy. Empty. Filled full and empty. Empty. E-M-P-T-Y. Last week we saw in verse 17... That the gospel, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And then here, in verse 18, is a continuation of this theme of revelation. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. This revelation of God's wrath, this bad news, is the, is the reason for the revelation of His righteousness, the good news, and why it's needed. Now, wrath, defined, means extreme anger, rage, and fury. But unlike humans, God's wrath is not some wild emotion. It is 
holy and pure wrath. Its origins are from perfect justice. Under his just judgment, we can make no appeal. His decision is final because he is 100% right in all his judgments. And here's the thing. People can't come away saying, well, I didn't know. Because as verse 19 says, what may be known about God is plain because God has made it plain to them. You see, people are suppressing the truth about God. That is, they're they're pushing it down so they don't have to deal with it. They think maybe if, if God just doesn't exist, I don't have to think about it. Well, this is what our first point from verses 18 to 23 speak of. Truth suppressed. Now, people have enough information from what's been created to know that there is a creator. They, they may not know his name, but they can know of his invisible qualities, his eternal power, as Paul says. I mean, you know how amazing or how amazed we can be at the knowledge and the technology that goes into the design of a new phone or perhaps a manufacturing of a high-rise building, and we're amazed at that. We hear a concert or see a dance, and we're struck by their beauty and the imagination. But how can these things, buildings or phones or a dance, compare to the beauty of a flower, to the complexity of the eye, or to the vastness of the galaxies. We, we know deep within us that it did not just happen by itself. There is an intelligent designer, a creator, who is responsible for it coming to us and for maintaining it and holding it up generation to generation. Therefore, people have no excuse. As verse 18 says, in godlessness and wickedness, people have suppressed this truth. They pushed it down. And verse 21 to 23 expands this even more. People turn from God. As people turn from God, or the more they do, the less they can see Him. The more people turn from God, the less they can see Him. It says, For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. They claim wisdom, but their thinking becomes futile and their hearts dark. The more humans seek Godless philosophy and science, the more they suppress this inner knowing about who God is. Yet in doing so, they're lying to themselves and becoming fools. I I recall this story of this missionary who went to Papua New Guinea. Uh, He 
he went to a tribe that believed that the way that they came to be on that island was that a large bird came and dropped their first descendants there on the island. Now, before he went on to teach about creation from Genesis, the missionary showed the people that around the world there are many creation stories. And when he showed them what some people in the West believe about being evolved from monkeys, these tribe people just could not stop laughing. They said, that's ridiculous. Indeed, any theory of creation without God requires great leaps intellectually. One evangelist says it takes more faith to be an atheist than it does to believe in a God. The reason why people want to rid themselves of God is because they don't want to be accountable before God. It's as if to say, if God doesn't exist, I'm not really guilty of sinning against Him. It's like the child who covers his eyes and says, you can't see me. Now, Psalm 53.1 says it rightly. The fool says this in, in his heart, there is no God. The fool. Here are two questions for us in, in application on this point. One, are you suppressing the truth yourself? Are you suppressing the truth? Maybe you don't want to acknowledge God like this last example because you don't want to change. Well, don't be a fool. Don't be a fool. Simply turning your back to the truck that's about to hit you will not make its impact on you any less. Even jumping from one philosophical reality to another in the, the metaverse of ideas does not remove the fact that one day you will die and you will then face judgment. Believer, when you hear truth, do you push it down? Do you suppress that truth? When, when a brother or sister comes to rebuke you, as Joe just mentioned from the covenant, with Scripture, is that something that you say, mm, I don't want to hear that? Or do you obey it? For instance, envy. Let's take envy as an example. It's one of the Ten Commandments. It says in Exodus twenty seventeen. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servants or his ox or his donkey or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. Now, do you think that such a command doesn't apply to you when you envy the lifestyle of another person who has what you like and you want it for yourself? Do you suppress that truth when another person gets the recognition that you think you should have gotten also? Well, here's a second application uh, to examine. This is for uh, the believers. Believer, are you losing sight of God? 
If so, the problem isn't God, you see. God has not changed. The problem is our sin when, when God, the view of God starts to go dim. It's like when I struggle to see the words in a book. It's not that the problem is the book. The book is not the problem. The problem is my eyes are getting weaker. I, I need help to focus, to fix my eyes on those words. And you see, God has revealed Himself generally in creation, but He's also revealed Himself specifically in His Word. If you're losing sight of God, if, he, if things seem cloudy or there's a fog between you and God, then take a deep, deep look in the Word. It's just like I need glasses to help me see more clearly. Well, use also the church and, and, and other brothers and sisters to help you see God's Word more clearly during those times. We need that. Fix your eyes on knowing God through Christ. And then you'll be able to give Him the glory that's due His name. You'll be able to gaze on the beauty of His character and meditate on the wonder of His ways. Then you'll be able to give thanks to Him. Content with all the benefits that He's already given you right here, right now. And even then thinking forward to the reward that will come to those who persevere to the end. Paul says in verse 21 to 23 that those who don't glorify Him as God nor give Him thanks, they don't fully understand, you see, who they're contradicting. Those who are like that, they have become fools, though they claim to be wise. And because we're created by God to worship, they end up worshiping created things rather than the Creator. They've made, as verse 21 to 28 goes on to explain, a foolish exchange in which God will then give them over. That's our second point. Now, in this passage, you'll see three times Paul uses these two phrases, uh, foolish exchange and giving over. You'll see that three times in the passage. In verse 23, for instance, it says the glory, they've exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images and idols. And then in verse 24, it says God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts. That's the first pair. The second pair is in verse 25. The truth of God is exchanged for a lie. And then in verse 26, packaged with that, God gave them over to shameful lusts. And then in verse 26 and 27, the natural sexual relations are exchanged for unnatural relations. And further down in verse 28 is the pair, God gave them over to a depraved mind. To exchange, it, it, it almost sounds like people are making a deal. You know, like going to, going to Langa. And, and, and suddenly you get a bad deal. You've made a, an exchange, but it wasn't a good one. Well, 
I mean, really, how bad could the exchange be that we're talking about in the Scripture here? How, how bad could it really be? Well, to understand the severity, you have to understand the significance of the one who is being offended in this exchange. Let me illustrate with a, par- a parable. The dog comes in the house and he knocks over a glass, spilling the drink and breaking the glass. And the owner of the dog slaps the dog's backside and the animal squeals off to the corner. Now, Perhaps it was a little harsh, but no one really thinks much of this offense. That same man suddenly finds himself surprised by the harsh comments of an officer of the law. Before another word, he slaps the officer across the face. Now we expect maybe he'll get some jail time or at least a fine for that offense. Okay, now the same man is upset with his government. At a political rally, the president of the country walks by. Angrily, the man comes up and he slaps the president right in the face. Immediately, he's pressed down to the ground, handcuffs behind and the question is, will he be silently executed? Will he spend the rest of his life in jail or at least the rest of the president's life in jail? I guess it depends on which country it is and which president he's offended. You see, it's the same action, the slap of the hand. But it has very, very different consequences. What's made the difference? It's not the action. It's not the slap. It's who has been offended. Who the sin is against. You see, the punishment must fit the crime. But it also must fit the one who's been offended by the crime. Imagine this man then slaps the creator of the universe. The eternal. The almighty God. Slaps him on the face. Here's one whose authority is far greater than any head of state. His honor higher than any person. His wisdom beyond understanding. His ways are perfect and true. His existence never ending. You see, you must see the glorious qualities and the eternal power of this God to grasp something of the magnitude of that person to understand the greatness of the offense against him. And we've not, we've not offended this God by a simple slap on the face. Oh no. We've turned from him in complete treason. We've rebelled against the King of Kings. We've told the God who made us that we don't care what He says. We're going to do what we want. We're not listening. Is not such a glorious and powerful God just and righteous in His wrath against such sinners? Sinners who are 
not only rebellious in their wickedness, but also suppressing that truth about this God and encouraging others to do the same. Do we not deserve the wrath of this holy God? Now those first two exchanges of the knowledge and worship of God for idols, it it, it says that idolatry is, is what they're given over to. Well, the idolatry isn't limited just to images and to altars. Anything can become an idol. Even good gifts from God can become idols. Whatever is put in front of God, money, sex, power, family, work, hobbies, they all can become idols. It's an exchange of the Creator for something created. Well, after each exchange, Paul shows that God's judgment is giving them over. It's, it's an active thing. He gives them over. He gives them what they desire. First, to sexual impurity. And then, to shameful lusts. Now, The Bible does actually talk a lot about sex. And I couldn't possibly give an exhaustive reflection on this topic, but it's important to note the connection both here in Romans and in the Bible in general between the spiritual and the physical. There is a connection here. For instance, the worship of false gods and idols in the Old Testament often included sexual sin uh, at every high place under every green tree and in 1 Corinthians 6 12 to 20 Paul makes a very strong case for this connection between the sexual and the spiritual that's 1 Corinthians 6 12 to 20 you can read that later now Paul specifically mentions homosexual sin here in in, chapter, in verses 26 and 27. Now, we should not think that this homosexual sin is the worst sin ever, nor the unforgivable sin. The uh, Bible does talk about an unforgivable sin. It's not homosexuality. According to Leviticus 18.22, it is detestable to God. But it's only one of the many sexual sins deemed unlawful by God in Leviticus 18 and in Leviticus 20. Both chapters. In 1 Corinthians 6.9, Paul clearly says that those who commit, commit sexual immorality, specifically mentioning homosexual sin, along with a whole list of other sins, thieves, the greedy, drunkards, slanders, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. You see, all sexual relations outside of marriage, and even when it's abused within marriage, that all will be met by the wrath of God. Now, it it should also be said that sexual immorality is not only physical, Sex sins 
sexual sin is just as much a battle of the mind as it is the body. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 27 and 28, he says, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Wandering eyes, pornography, sexual fantasy, self-gratification, these are all sexual sins. Sexual sin is damaging. It's hurtful. It damages your spiritual well-being and it damages the relationships and even your marriage. Even if you're single now with the hope of one day being married, if you are engaged in sexual sin of body or mind, you are destroying or damaging your marriage. Sexual immorality and impurity is a slap to the face of God. It's a slap to His creation. And it mocks marriage, which is the image of Christ and His bride, the church. God hates sexual sin. God hates sexual sin. Ephesians 5, 5 and 6 says, For you may be sure of this, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, that is an idolater, has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. God's wrath. Now, God gave sex as a good gift. A good gift where the two become one flesh. This one flesh union within the context of lifelong marriage covenant between one man and one woman is holy. Holy to the Lord. Within this union of husband and wife, they uniquely share and enjoy intimate love. And they get to express this godlike procreation where children are born in their own image. So it's good in its right place. Now, this third exchange of natural sexual relations for unnatural ones and God's giving over uh, is, is different than those first two which lead to uh, idolatry. This exchange in verse 26, the description of unnatural sexual practice is there in verse 26, while the, the giving over comes later. It comes in verse 28. Furthermore, it says... Just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. So this is taking us back to that knowledge of God. In some ways, it's a summary of this whole section on people's exchanging and God's giving over. Now, 
when the knowledge and worship of God are exchanged, actions that turn against God's created order begin to be natural to the people who do that. As unnatural as they are, they begin to feel natural. To the eyes of those, to those whose eyes have been darkened, these actions don't seem wrong. It, in fact, it's quite natural for those who turned away from God. And they think, what's wrong with that? Last week I spoke about confessing sin. The sexual sins also need to be confessed. Let's, let's think about some ways to apply this. When, when, when you're confessing sexual sin, understand that when it's private, it should be confessed privately to, to a godly person of the same gender. That's, that's important. Because there's many ways that you can be pulled away. In fact, Galatians 6.1 says, Watch yourselves, lest you also be tempted. So if you're hearing this kind of confession, make sure that you're, you're uh, you know, in a place where you won't fall into temptation. Now, sometimes this sin becomes public, like the illustration last week of the pastor in pornography. And then it would need to be confessed publicly. You may be thinking, wow. But sexual sin is so shameful. Yes, it is. And it's not easy to make those kinds of confessions. But it's a first step towards healing. And remember, Jesus hung shamefully on a cross to cover the shame of our sin. And so you can make these confessions. If that's you... Especially if you're a man, if that's you, come talk to one of the elders. We'd be happy to walk with you in this. And women, if you are dealing with this, many of the elders' wives would be happy to, to walk with you in this process. Now, one other thought. Parents, don't be ashamed to teach your children about sex in its proper context. Without a doubt, the world is talking about this. And it's going to be unavoidable for your children in this information age. It's coming at ages younger and younger and younger every year. Use modesty and use biblical wisdom when you're teaching your children. Give your kids the stability of God's word so they don't get tossed about by the waves of the world's immoralities. Teach your children, parents. Well, let's turn now to verses 29 to 32, our third point. Filled, full, and empty. Now, a depraved mind no longer sees right and wrong correctly. As I was just saying, people think it's just normal to sin. So verse 28 concludes, they do what ought not to be done. Well, verse 29 then shows what happens when people 
continue in sin. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness. Evil, greed, depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips. It, it's, you know how it is like when you go to the line and, and the dessert is there and you're like, ooh, just one more. Or, or maybe you're binge watching TV and it's, it's late at night, but you, you just got to click that and watch the next episode button. You know, that's what it's like. It just draws you in. Sin keeps you coming. And this is how the world is with sin. They don't know how to say enough. They're full. They're filled with evil. Full of evil. And when we read through this list of sins that Paul gives us, none of us, None of us can honestly read through that list without conviction multiple times. This list hits us. But just as they're filled with wickedness and evil, they're also empty. Did you see that? Verse 31. They're empty. They have no understanding, no fidelity. No love, no mercy. Now, I'm not sure if Paul had this understanding, fidelity, love, and mercy in his mind way back in verse 20 when he was talking about God's invisible qualities, but that's what these are. These are some of God's invisible qualities. They, there, there seems even to be a progression in this list, right? Right? The lack of understanding leads to infidelity or unfaithfulness. And without faithfulness, love is meaningless. And if love lacks, mercy does not exist. You know, as I look around the world now and I see how people are interacting with one another or even how they interact with with believers, it's no wonder it's so difficult to trust others. Because as people suppress the knowledge of God and become unhinged in sin, there's nothing of God's qualities that remain. They have forgotten that proverb. Proverb 9.10 that says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. If they're going to have love and mercy, they've got to understand God. Paul sums up this conversation in verse 32. He says, Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. And just like I said, we're, we're all convicted as we read Paul's list. We all deserve death under God's righteous decree. But there was one of whom it could be said he committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. Jesus was so unlike us. 
O sinner, where you are filled with wickedness and sin, He is empty of sin. Where you are empty of God's qualities, He is full of God's qualities. So filled with understanding of God's righteousness, Jesus lived in full fidelity, full faithfulness to God's righteous decree. As God's promised Son, the fullness of God in human flesh, He did nothing to deserve death. And yet, full of love, Jesus lays down His life in death filled with mercy to those who are bound in sin like you and I who are condemned to death. He took death. The death that was deserved by us for everyone who would believe in Him. You see, Jesus' death is sufficient. Sufficient to cover the death that we deserve. But praise God, Jesus doesn't stay in the grave. The third day He rose again. And I would say, O sinner, believe. Believe in Jesus. The sin you thought would promise you joy in life was leading you straight to hell. But Jesus bore that wrath that was reserved for you. And by grace, He'll grant you God's righteousness. Believing in Jesus will result in a complete transformation of your life. You will be changed. You can see it in the believers that are around you. Look at it in the believers of this church. A believer no longer suppresses the truth of God, but embraces and pursues the true Son. A believer takes time to know God and what He's done and then he glorifies Him as God and gives thanks to Him for what He's done. A believer no longer claims to be wise in his own eyes, but trusting in the Gospel, even when others think he's a fool for doing so. A believer turns from sinful desires and shameful lusts and worships and serves their Creator. That's what a believer does. Oh, believers, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. He will give you strength to turn from sin and follow His commands. You see, in wrath, God gives wicked people what they desire, what they want, and that is bad news. Because what people desire is a godless, sin-filled freedom to do whatever they want. As we saw last week, when you follow your desires, you become slaves to whatever you desire. You, you, what you follow becomes your master. The good news is that in love, God gave wicked people Not what they desire, but what they need, a Savior. He gave them His one and only Son. Jesus gave Himself that we might be reconciled to God. 
And following him, we become servants of his desires, of God's understanding and faithfulness and love and mercy. We, we take on his character. And that, brothers and sisters, is true freedom. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we were turned away. We were suppressing the truth and the knowledge of God. But you came to fulfill God's righteous decree, dying the death that we deserved. Thank you for such mercy, such love. You have been faithful to all your promises. Oh, Lord, may you, Holy Spirit, bring each one of us to a greater understanding of the grace of God as we see just how bad this bad news is and how much better is the good news of your gospel. We pray this in the name of Christ and for your glory. Amen.